This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Welcome to Community or Chaos, friends. We'll be having, hopefully, community on air, but a bit of chaos in the world. We're talking with Robert Patman, professor of political studies at Togo University, an expert on international relations, and Professor James Hadley, who has an interest in Russian foreign policy and the European Union, nationalism and ethnic conflict, all things that seem to be happening right now in uh, the Ukraine and Russia. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to community or chaos and you'll have um, this program in a few days after it goes to air. Well, Robert and James, what's the state of the conflict at the present time in the Ukraine? Sure, Jim. Um, Well, it it seems to be that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has uh, widened and that Russia has launched attacks in the western part of Ukraine. Um, And there was a missile attack, I believe, 15 miles away from the Polish border uh, during the last 24 hours. And the indications are that some Russian troops are beginning to move into uh, Mariupol, which has been under intense bombardment for quite a long time. And we also know that two American journalists were injured. Um, Well, one was uh, fatally injured, uh, killed, and the other um, is receiving hospital treatment. So, yeah, I mean, it it seems to me this, this conflict... Uh, has the potential to widen, but that that as far as you know, Jim may have some more to add to that. I that was just my sort of uh, slightly more superficial overview of what's happened in the last twenty four hours. Yeah, I think that's about right. The um, the missile strikes on Yarov of this um, military base in the west is probably a sign signal that uh, uh, Russian leadership has been saying that uh, they regard any um, kind of military supplies to the Ukrainian forces as a legitimate target as a 
uh, as effectively an intervention in the war, so therefore a legitimate target. So it's a, it's both carrying that out and also sending a message that they'll continue to do that. Um, I think just to add, I, I think that's right about the general sort of strategic situation. I think the other element apparently is that probably they're kind of closing in on Kiev or at least surrounding Kiev. So that's the other kind of element to look at. Uh, in, in regards to the West, I think so far it's been airstrikes, but kind of not really kind of ground troops heading that way. I think the concentration is still in the south, the east and around Kiev in terms of ground troops. This uh, missile strike, isn't this kind of what NATO is worried about? Is It's also the reason why they don't have a no-fly zone. They're afraid the, of it widening to include all of NATO. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And the Americans and NATO leadership have drawn a red line. But the problem is, um, with conflict, um, even if all the parties with want to maintain that discipline, and the Russians have quite a big interest in NATO not being involved, um, uh, it seems to me that this conflict could spill over. Uh, just a sheer number of refugees leaving the country. There's talk... That the Americans have warned that uh, the Russians uh, may use chemical weapons at some point. There are indications that um, in terms of combat, as opposed to missile strikes, the Russians have suffered some military frustrations. And they've also taken quite a lot of casualties um, by all accounts. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, my, my concern is, is that while you can, dra- dra- you can draw these red lines... It seems to me with an intense conflict where passions are aroused, there's always the potential for spillover. For example, um, the artillery strikes by the Russians haven't been particularly surgical, and it would only take a stray missile strike to go into Poland or something. And it sounds inconceivable, but you can't rule anything out in this situation. And then you would have the whole question of will Article 5 be invoked on the NATO side? So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I remain intensely worried about this. And like many people, uh, quite demoralised that Mr Putin has moved to a full-scale um, invasion of a neighbouring country. Yeah, could I, if I could just sort of add on that, um, I mean, I also remain incredibly fearful about the potential for escalation of this. And, and I think Robert's right that it, it can, can happen through, uh, through accident, through... Um, uh, accidental kind of engagement. Uh, what um, Robert mentioned about potentially, say, a cruise missile going off target into Poland, uh, they, they are sort of taking measures for, for, against this by kind of putting uh, Patriot anti-missile uh, systems into place. So they're sort of trying to kind of reassure us that that won't happen. It would, of course, pose exactly that question if, if a missile did hit it. I think in the longer term, one thing that... Um, I mean, I agree about the no-fly zone, and uh, there is pressure on uh, President Biden and and from some NATO um, sources to try and impose a no-fly zone. And, of course, Ukraine and the Ukrainian president is uh, calling for that. Um, But but, uh, Biden in particular has been very clear that a no-fly zone could only be implemented by engaging uh, Russian airplanes in, in the sky. So it could only mean... Uh, direct conflict against Russia. So that's why they've said they're not going to do that. And of course, we had right at the start Putin's warning that any 
engagement with Russia uh, could have the most horrendous consequences. I think in the long term, one thing that um, that I wonder about is, I mean, it's very hard to see the way the conflict goes, but if um, you had sort of insurgency still happening in a generally occupied Ukraine, um, what often happens in these situations, of course, it happened with Afghanistan, but uh, one example actually was Chechnya. Um, I always say that the big news item on 10th of September 2001 was that uh, Russian planes had gone into Georgian airspace, into the Pankisi Gorge, to do strikes on Chechen fighters who were based there and using it as a base to go into Chechnya proper. So there's a potential for that if Russia interprets kind of support for uh, fighters or insurgents across the border in Poland and so on. Now, that's looking a long way ahead, but it gives you an illustration mm. of how how difficult it is to make that balance for, for NATO in particular to say we're not entering the conflict. Um, but at the same time to give support to the legitimate side in defending themselves. Isn't there going to be a strong um, urgency almost um, from the eastern NATO nations like the the, uh, Baltic countries and Poland to want strongly to support Ukraine and also the feeling that if they seek if Russia was to succeed, they might be next. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's very true. I think that uh, a number of Eastern European countries do not believe that Mr. Putin's ambitions are confined to the Ukraine alone. But there's real problems facing Mr. Putin. And in fact, he's in a race against time, really, because he's got to achieve his military objectives um, in an accelerated time frame because of the sanctions that are now being implied. And... Um, you know, in a sense, Russia is facing the prospect of possible economic collapse in the not too different, uh, different, not too f- uh, distant future. So, in a sense, that is also there's also signs of discontent um, within both the FSB uh, and also in senior military uh, sources, uh, albeit retired, warned Mr. Putin before the invasion that, in their words, it would not uh, invading. Ukraine would not be a walk in the park and that they warned against it as being a catastrophic step, which and we've heard from sources that some people, you know, quite closely connected with um, decision making circles in Moscow are quite demoralized about um, the prospects for achieving victory, because Jim just mentioned the word insurgency. I think one thing's become very clear in the last um two plus, is it 18 days now we're into it, about two and a half weeks since the invasion. And Mr. Putin doesn't allow anybody to call it an invasion or a war. It's a special military operation. Um, Since that's developed, the premise in which that operation was launched, as defined by Mr. Putin, that Ukraine's not a proper nation, it's not a legitimate sovereign state, it was a Russian creation, and therefore by implication Russia was reclaiming what was rightfully its. That is, that, that that assumption has been shattered. I mean, you, Russians have met very fierce resistance and Ukraine, have, you know, I think the Ukrainian leadership, I think Mr. Zelensky has surprised Mr. Putin. Uh, he's risen to the occasion. He's insp- Even his political opponents have admired his courage. Um, and he's also no slouch when it comes to good media presentations. Um, and he, 
I think he's mobilized the Ukrainians in a difficult situation. So in a sense, you know, um, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen in the present situation. But it, it seems to me that even if Russia succeeds in uh, overtaking, uh, overrunning Kiev, um, and that looks, you know, on paper, that looks entirely doable, and the other major cities, it will still be faced a full-blown insurgency, um, which will be a nightmare. A, they haven't got the economic strength to maintain that, to have, to occupy the whole country. And B, they lack the political legitimacy to successfully install a pro-Putin regime that will command the support of Ukrainian people. So I think Mr. Putin's got himself into a very difficult situation here. Yeah, I mean, just to, to, I agree with a lot of that, but I'm just focusing back on the question of the Baltic states, Poland, etc. Uh, I mean, the NATO line is very clear. Any attack on them is an attack mm. on... Uh, it, it means invoking Article 5, so it would be kind of suicide from the Russian side. Um, I suppose there's the question about the their sort of support for Ukraine and whether that might go beyond what, say, President Biden thinks is sensible. Mm. So there's been some sort of disputes about supplying um, fighter aircraft to Ukraine um, from Poland, but um, uh, basically the Americans kind of drawing the line on that. Um, so I, I, where, where I, I, I think... Robert's analysis is just right. Is is the fact that um, Russia is going to be bogged down with this for a long time? It already is. So I don't see any imminent kind of attack more widely. Um, even if ultimately they were to get some sort of control of Ukraine, it, it's it's always going to be a kind of occupation. It's always going to be challenged. And as Robert Riley said, the, the economic effects on Russia because of the sanctions is horrific. So I think the only circumstances in which there is a sort of attack on any of the other um, kind of former Soviet um, republics, which uh, such as Moldova or, or NATO members such as Estonia and Latvia, Lithuania and so on, is some sort of kind of um, just sort of lashing out or trying to kind of create a diversion or trying to kind of antagonize the West. Now, I'd say that's impossible. But uh, I must admit, I didn't expect this invasion. I didn't think it was in Russia's interest. I didn't think Putin would gamble like this, but he has. So we are in an era of unpredictability, and particularly as kind of Russia gets hit by these sanctions, we don't know for sure the way that um, Putin might react. I do agree, actually, with Robert. I mean, I do think in some ways our best hope in this is some sort of palace coup, really, against President Putin, because this isn't in Russia's interest. And... It does seem very much a Putin-led thing. I think he had support from people like um, the the head of the military, from the defence minister, Shoigu. Um, but um, I think a lot of people in the kind of um, senior uh, levels of the military and also the um, intelligence service and so on will see that this is not uh, going well. It's not in Russia's interest. Um, and that maybe continuing with President Putin is not in Russia's interest either. So that's a potential area for change. But um, again, it's just speculation. Really. How? What about Putin's sanity? I mean, to me, um, mm. he's done things that taken terrific gambles, almost a fantasy of, of, of Russia's place in the world. Yeah, I mean, there's it's sort of two ways to look at it. One is that this is really in line with everything that he's been saying for maybe even up to two decades. 
um, well, at least say 15 years, um, including um, particularly after 2012, the kind of conservative turn and the idea that uh, uh, Russia's uh, interests were being challenged by a kind of expanding NATO, expanding EU in its zone of historical interest and the, the identity side of that. So, and also the preparedness to use force, which he um, kind of, well, he began his um, presidential career really with, uh, or as prime minister actually initially with Chechnya and then later in Georgia, uh, then uh, of course in uh, the um, east of Ukraine, Crimea, and then later on in Syria. So, so one line is that this was kind of building up, we could see it happening. Um, but I, my interpretation, I do see this as something different. And this is why I'm not surprised. I'm quite impressed, but I'm not surprised by the unity and strength of the Western response, including very severe sanctions. Um, and also the resistance in Ukraine, because I expected that as well. Um, and I think President Putin should have expected that. And therefore, it does seem that this is going against what maybe he judged would be a relatively easy campaign and one in which Russia's might be welcome. We're told that. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. <laughs> you know, it's very hard to tell whether, you know, I've seen a lot of analysts say this, you know, and that, you know, he expected uh, Ukrainians to kind of welcome uh, Russians, but that may just have been propaganda. Um, it would certainly be a, a very kind of unwise um, intelligence uh, judgment that would say that that was what they should expect <laughs> back then. Um, so that does mean that in many ways this is way beyond what he's done in the past in terms of um, Chechnya, for example, could be presented as an internal Russian affair. It was within the borders of the recognized Russian Federation, um, very unlikely to get any kind of intervention from the West. Um, and Crimea, in some ways, was a kind of... Um, uh, taking advantage of the situation and and also had very kind of important significance um, strategically and so on. So in the past, you could see him actually being quite cautious, pragmatic, but also kind of seizing on opportunities, whereas this goes way beyond this. And I do think there's several elements at work there. One is, I think, this sort of um, ideology and way of thinking that Ukraine isn't an independent state, that is part of this historical Russia and that Russia must reclaim this. I do think he actually believes that now. Mm. Um, I do think he's become more isolated. Um, we can see that partly because of COVID, but this sort of almost kind of seeing himself separate. And we can see it physically in that bizarre Security Council meeting, his own Security Council, um, before the war started. Um, as the sort of czar almost with his courtiers having to kind of appear one by one in front of him. Um, and I think also there's a sort of, well, there's the fact he's been in power too long and that always kind of creates a lack of sense of reality. And I get a sense that he almost sort of sees himself as Russia now. He's been in power that long. He sees the what he perceives as insults to Russia as insults to him and vice versa. And that's and quite dangerous. It is. It is. And we're seeing the effects of that. So I wouldn't like to kind of put it in medical terms about whether he's insane or not, but certainly he seems to be gambling and uh, including going against what I perceive as uh, Russia's own interest. Now, I have, I have heard counter arguments to that, particularly from kind of realist scholars who sort of say, well, this is kind of, you know, what he's trying to do in the South, for example, is to get control of the sea there, to get control of, uh, um, to help 
supply Crimea to link up with the Eastern Breakaway, so-called republics, to get the shipbuilding industries, which is one of the towns which is, has been under attack overnight, actually, um, and also to kind of stop Ukraine becoming a NATO member and therefore being able to kind of house um, forward missiles, which um, might be used against Russia. So I've heard those sort of things, but uh, from my viewing of it, I, I just could never see this as ever being in Russia's interest, and therefore uh, it doesn't seem particularly rational to me. I, I'd agree with Jim's interpretation. I think there are elements of change and continuity in Putin's behaviour here. Uh, he has always been ruthless, I think, in the use in defending what he sees as uh, the interests of his regime, and uh, and also in the use of force against both domestic opponents and and and, but with more care internationally, but also prepared to use it. Um, the inter, you know, and in a sense, we're seeing some continuities in the way he's applying force in Ukraine. Uh, the use of intense bombardment was used in Syria, and. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised there. I also agree that he has, because of COVID, he has been subject to um, isolation. Um, and, uh, I, you know, uh, some people believe that's turned him. I, I don't go that far. I, I, I think uh, for the reasons that Jim has indicated, he's been in power a long time, 22 years. I, I think those one thing I've noticed about his interactions, just watching it on TV or, or video um is that the people around him seem to be absolutely terrified of him. There was that, some of, you know, you probably saw this, Jim, as well. Just before the invasion, there was an exchange between himself and an intelligence official. And the guy was absolutely humiliated and dressed down, told mm. to speak clearly as if he was a naughty boy in class who was mumbling. And uh, it shows you how much power he has accumulated. And um, unfortunately, he's not getting robust, independent advice, which helps with sound decision-making. Um, so it, it, it may be that factor. I, I think also there's another factor that I'd like to add is that I think Mr. Putin has seen himself as something of an international leader of the far right conservative ideology that he sort of embraced since he's, he's flirted with national populists around the, around the world, supported them where he could. He may have felt after Brexit and after the uh, polarization of American opinion following the Trump administration, that the West would be too divided and too weak to react to a stepping up of, you know, the annexation which began it, of Ukraine in 2014. So, you know, we shouldn't forget that Russia has been involved in eastern Ukraine as well um, during the last eight years. So I, I think there are elements of both continuity and change. Um, and yeah, and I also agree with Jim that I, I don't think his behaviour confirm conforms exactly to the sort of classical realist interpretation. Um, in a sense, if it you know he could have stopped <laughs> with the early you know foray into eastern Ukraine, consolidated yeah. his gains there and left it at that, but yeah. he didn't, and he's gone for a full scale invasion, which to me. Is a classic overreach. I think he's. I think under Putin, Russia Russia has overreached itself, and it will pay the. It will have to deal with the consequences. Yeah, I mean, I think there is. Um, I think that's right about this. Um, maybe hope 
that uh, there was going to be divisions both in the United States, and we saw it initially, but it doesn't seem to have really kind of materialised. Some noises from um, Donald Trump and then turning back on that. Um, so, um, I, again, I think he should have realised, and decent intelligence would have kind of predicted this, that there would have been unity, but you can see why they might have maybe hoped not that they got away with things in the past, with Crimea and so on. Um, and... Hungary in particular, um, of course, um, uh, Orban there kind of almost sees kind of Putin as a model or did, but he's kind of come out very strongly against this. And so there is a level of unity, which maybe uh, they didn't expect. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very hard to sort of, um, it, it's hard to see into the kind of leadership of the, of the Russian uh, state at the moment to kind of see the degree to which this was a kind of um, unitary decision or whether it was Putin on his own. There was a wonderful picture, actually just kind of talking about this isolation, a wonderful picture in The Guardian yesterday of um, that meeting of Putin, not the one that Robert was talking about. There was one with him meeting uh, his defence minister and I think the um, head of the armed forces and Putin looking very haggard at the end of a long table and then sitting right down at the other end. And then it had President Zelensky and his defence minister with their sort of arms around each other laughing. And it was just a brilliant kind of um, image of uh, the, the sort of different kind of uh, almost human situation. Obviously, Zelensky's not got much to laugh about, but he's come across as a very kind of capable and, and warm leader. And, and it's... Partly, actually, the fact that he's not that kind of professional politician, that he came as a kind of actor and, and is almost kind of embodying the Ukrainian people. In a way, as I say, Putin maybe sees himself as embodying the Russian state, but I don't think people really see him mm. as embodying the Russian people because he's so distant, even from his own leadership. Putin may have thought that the president of Ukraine, because he was new, would be a walkover. There wouldn't be this stuff. Yeah, yeah that, 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 the yeah. meeting, early meeting in June 2019, and um, it was apparently a meeting where uh, they didn't get on particularly well. Mr. Putin basically dominated the meeting and subjected Zelensky to a bit of a dressing. Well, you know, uh, uh, gave him a bit of a history lesson, which he didn't. I don't, I don't think, but I, I don't think. I think Putin may have taken his what he thought was his measure of. Zelensky um, may have underestimated him and may have misread him. I don't know, but it, it, it seems to me that um, the Russian leadership under Mr. Putin may have been surprised by how capable and resourceful Zelensky has been in this crisis. And it's it's not good news for Putin. Because but again, I think this is a major miscalculation. I mean, I think it should yeah. be... OK, they may have hoped that he wouldn't be a good war leader or that Ukrainians wouldn't kind of... that they may just kind of flee or whatever, but... You shouldn't have expected that. And this no. is where I think the ideology comes in, that I think in some ways he does seem to be believing this very kind of warped um, interpretation of history and warped idea about what Ukraine is. I mean, some of what he says is actually OK, um, but irrelevant in many ways. And I think particularly the fact that, OK, Ukraine hasn't kind of existed as an independent state in exactly the borders it's in today. But the very fact of it having been independent for more than 30 years develops a narrative of national identity. And particularly after uh, Crimea, particularly after the, um, the war in the East, um, that consolidated a sense of Ukrainianness 
and kind of loyalty to the state, even among Russian speakers. Um, and of course, that's this is again where it's a miscalculation because that's going to even increase even more, uh, and is happening. How do you see bombard- Sorry, with this bombardment, for example, of Kharkiv, which is predominantly Russian speakers and near to the Russian border, but. All that's going to do is turn people against Russia. And I think also within that is, and I think this is something Robert's talked about a bit before as well, is the different kind of regimes. People of Ukraine don't want, the last thing they want to be is part of Russia now. Mm. I mean, obviously with what's happened, but even without that, because it is such a warped um, authoritarian state now. Uh, and they were democratizing, they were kind of orientating towards the European Union and so on. So, um even if they kind of feel that strong ties with Russia are important historically and so on, they don't want to be part of uh, a new Russian empire or authoritarian Russian state. What's your... Can you talk about the people who speak Russian in the Ukraine and how are they reacting? And You mentioned that one of the major Russian-speaking cities has been taken heavy bombardment. Can you talk about this some more? Well, so that was Kharkiv, but also we're talking about potentially Odessa, which hasn't been really struck yet. Um, uh, so, I mean, the language situation's complicated. Basically, a lot of people speak both languages. Now, since the Euromaidan revolution, then um, there has been a shift more to people using Ukrainian uh, and also state policies to try and encourage that, that kind of Ukrainian as the primary language in schools and so on. So there's been both that kind of state-led policy, but also people kind of choosing to use Ukrainian more as a symbolic thing about kind of building a separate identity uh, against Russia under threat. But the language thing doesn't determine people's sense of uh, who they want, which state they want to be part of. If you go back to 1991, uh, Ukraine did have a referendum leading to its independence out of the Soviet Union. And across every single region, including uh, the Russian-speaking regions, there was a majority in support of independence. So, I mean, Putin himself acknowledges this in his, uh, um, well, in this essay he wrote about Ukraine last year, that uh, you can have kind of countries with who maybe share the same culture, same language, but have different um, state identity and, and uh, different approaches. And, and that's the reality. So I suppose that's the area where maybe he kind of felt that people were kind of... Um, welcome Russia's um, invasion in those kind of areas of the east, maybe in the wider kind of Donbass region beyond the areas consolidated in separatist uh, so-called republics. Um, But this is where it also comes down to military tactics. If you're going to kind of do it by siege and bombardment, you're not going to kind of then encourage people to welcome you as as liberated. No, I agree with what Jim said. And uh, I I think... uh... Mr. Putin's actions have had exactly the opposite to what he wanted. And that that does show someone who doesn't have an intellectual grasp what's going on, to put it bluntly, because the other thing is that Mr. Putin's been banging on about the expansion of NATO and that NATO was the cause of the Ukrainian problem and NATO aggression and expansion. And yet his action in launching a full-scale invasion will take the boundaries, if he achieves the greater Russia, it will take Russia alongside NATO uh, directly, you know, um, so much for a buffer state because, he, he, you know, all his actions seem to be flying in the face of what he wants. And Jim's absolutely right. If you wanted to 
think up a way of alienating Russian-speaking Ukrainians, well, what's better than bombarding the cities in which they live and make their life absolute misery? And it seems to me um, that Ukrainian nationalism has been strengthened by Russian actions the last 18 days, not weakened. And I think Mr. Putin's got to try to find a way out of this situation rapidly before it escalates further. But um, very difficult for that to happen. And it seems to me that um, the key to this, Jim touched on this earlier, is Russia deciding that Mr. Putin is not representing their national interests and yeah. taking action. But how that's going to happen? Yeah, if I, if I might just add to that, because going back to a point that I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned before, which is that uh, in many ways, Putin might have been able to kind of stick with recognizing the so-called break, the breakaway republics, uh, maybe trying to expand there, maybe trying to link up a bit to Crimea, mm. but in a way that would be relatively cautious, that wouldn't have, it would have got strong response, but not the, the immensely strong sanctions in mm. the city now. Um, it would have kind of made Russia even more of a kind of isolated state, but not necessarily the pariah state it is at the moment. So um, kind of that's what I expected. Um, now, when it went beyond that, went into this full invasion, I think part of the sense of shock that we all felt was was that it, it was connected also to the fact of it's so hard to kind of see any way out of this, to see a kind of off-ramp, as they call it, for, mm. for Russia, because any, any significant concessions to Russia, which might allow President Putin to have some, keep some faith, uh, seem to reward aggression. I mean, it would have been rewarding yeah. aggression to, or threat of aggression uh, to have done that before the war, but to do it now uh, is very problematic, both from the Ukrainian side, but also from the Western side. So it really is hard to see. And I, and I still kind of hope that the, the route out of this might be some sort of change of power in, in Russia. But even then, how, how, how does Ukraine respond? How do Western states respond? Um, we don't want to re create that cycle of kind of alienating Russia, feeling it's no. leading to a Putin feeling that it's not kind of respected as an equal, not part of kind of wider European security. And yet it would hardly be surprising if Ukraine was <laughs> given NATO membership now. It makes sense. Why do they want it to stop a Russian invasion, which is exactly yeah. what's happened. Um, so, and of course, it's different circumstances from, say, the end of the Second World War, because you're not going to have a full occupation of Russia, as you did of Germany, to kind of enforce change, or, or Japan, in fact. So it's very problematic. There is actually mm. kind of noises that there might be some sort of advance in negotiations, not so much the kind of um, Macron-Putin sort of things, but more the um, uh, kind of Ukrainian-Russian um, ones within um, uh, on the border of Belarus. But he seems to even. I, mean, I, I, I do struggle to see what kind of deal could be done here. The, the, what might happen is some sort of ceasefire and a kind of almost consolidation of the lines as they are at the minute. I suppose one thing that Putin does have in his favour is complete control of the media now in Russia. If there was a. So he could, sorry, just finish that. So I, I, presumably he could kind of sell it as a victory, even though it wouldn't be. Um, but people. People are finding ways even around yeah. its complete blockage now, so I don't know how well that would go. How would um, how could Ukraine, in a way, accept a ceasefire if it meant that they've lost those some of the cities on the Black Sea? Well, I think it's very problematic. I agree with Jim. I, I think uh, I, I don't think Ukraine's in any mood 
that they just to just be bear in mind the the carnage that's been wreaked on that country uh more than 40 billion dollars plus in damage to the infrastructure of various cities that's a conservative estimate and i think there's such a strength of feeling that whoever either putin whoever follows him will have to pay for the damages done to that country secondly uh the civilian the the, the treat you know and also the fact that Mr. Putin, uh, there's strength of feeling. This is why I agree with Jim. I don't think there's an easy path here because I think there's been a degree of outrage in Ukraine, particularly suggestions by Lavrov and others, um, the foreign minister, that the, and also the, the, the UN ambassador, the Russian ambassador to the UN, suggesting you, that the missile strikes were not actually done by the Russian army, they were done by Ukrainians that the Nazi, neo-Nazis were missiling their own people to cause tensions with Russia. I mean, this is just, you know, how should I put it, self-evidently wrong. And I think it's going to, you know, this is the passions that have been unleashed during this conflict, and it's going to be very difficult. I think Mr. Zen, uh, President Zelensky um, will want to see Russia actually defeated. I think... Um, it may not happen militarily, but we, we have to wait and see. But, you know, it's very difficult to see how there can be a, some sort of compromise here um, without regime change in Moscow. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, yeah, going back to your actual question about the southern cities and so on, I mean, I do think it would be very difficult for President Zelensky to kind of to, to agree to anything that did seem to reward the Russian aggression. Uh, including, say, control of those cities. On the other hand, there may be there may be a limit to the degree to which Ukraine Ukrainians can suffer, and there may be some sort of dynamic towards at least trying to get some sort of ceasefire. The problem with ceasefires is that they are usually used to consolidate control of territory. This is what we saw in Bosnia. The, the, uh, in that case, in fact, when the Bosnian Serbs had the, the military advantages, they kept negotiating and there were these temporary ceasefires and things which they kept breaking. Um, but they used it to consolidate territory to kind of build up their forces even more and so on. So um, ceasefire, the, the, the Ukrainian side would have to be very careful about a ceasefire. But at the same time, if you look at Mariupol, for example, the people need relief. <laughs> Yeah. It's going to be an absolute catastrophe, or it already is. But, so there is, there is a very difficult decision-making, I think, at the moment um, from the Ukrainian side. Um, just going back to the Russian side, um, I think it does need change in Russia. As I said, the problem is we kind of had that in the 90s. We had that optimism. So how can we kind of trust them to kind of change again this time? Uh, and anything that kind of makes it look like Russia is being punished and so on, again, will kind of feed into that resentment. So I don't think a lot depends on, uh, okay, we may talk about a sort of palace coup within Moscow, but a lot would depend on the wider public. And um, it's very hard to tell how people are feeling because opinion polls aren't neutral. Mm. Um, they're controlled by the state. And in any case, um, people are fearful of saying what they think. But I suspect um, potentially there is maybe majority support for this at the moment, but that can change as casualties mm. mount, particularly if they're using conscripts. We might have a kind of first Chechen war situation or the Afghan war um, from the Soviet side then. Um, so you might get kind of protests for, from mothers and so on. Um, but I think what you might get is um, a kind of polarisation within Russia. So 
I hope for change there, but there's also dangers in it. Um, I think there is a big polarization at the moment because it's hard to have a kind of nuanced view on this. You're either for it or against it, really. You either call it a war or you call it an act of uh, military, whatever it is. <laughs> um, so I think, and, and Putin's kind of built that up. He's had this kind of, um, uh, it is populist in many ways, that kind of idea of kind of anybody who's against our regime and what we're doing is a, is a agent of the West, is an enemy of Russia. Okay. So if you kind of think of the kind of polarization you had in the United States with uh, around President Trump or the polarization you had in the UK around um, Brexit and magnify that by 100 times, that's the kind of potential um, divisions you might have in a changing Russia. There certainly wouldn't be this kind of united, um, strong kind of sense towards changing things as uh, as that's probably putting it a bit strongly, but there was certainly an urge towards change in the early 1990s. And it's hard to see how you'd get that uh, yeah. at the moment. I, I, of course, I part of the problem with the, eight, uh, the 1990s is that a lot of those changes benefited the very few and didn't benefit Russia. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, the irony of this is, and this is where it comes back to Putin's miscalculation, Putin is now taking Russia back to what it was in the 1990s. He he kind of benefited from the boom in oil prices and so on. Um, but, you know, he did bring back some stability in the early 2000s. And there was growth. Uh, I mean, Russia kind of reached a low point anyway. This is what happens with recessions. So growth was likely to happen anyway. Um, so he was kind of able to say, look what I've achieved. But now with, with the effect of the sanction, you've got the collapse of the ruble as you did in 98. But because of sanctions, they can't kind of benefit from cheaper exports because of that. Um, so what's he gained from this? <laughs> He's taken it back to as it was in the 1990s. Okay, um, okay we might have a bit of music. But you're right. I mean, uh, uh, going forward from this, it's um, you need to change Russia. Okay, um, we, we yeah. might have a bit of music and then we'll go back to changing Russia. Yeah. <laughs> There were three of us this morning 
I'm the only one this evening, but I will go on. These frontiers are my prison. An old woman gave us shelter, kept us hidden in the garret. Then the soldiers came. She died without a whisper. by Leonard Cohen. We're talking with Professor James Hadley and Professor Robert Patman about Ukraine. Well, do the economic sanctions, they're really making a huge difference, aren't they? Well, it's still early stages. This war's been going on 18 days. And, um, you know, as I say, the situation's unfolding. And we can't predict how the situation is going to look in six weeks. Um, as Jim has said, Moscow Stock Exchange uh, has closed. The ruble has depreciated by something like 30%. Also, Russia has been cut off from the international bank transfer payment system, at least the Russian Central Bank has, which means that it can't access all of its currency reserves, the, the reserves that it built up. Um, so, you know, the... Um, I take Jim's point about the public opinion about the war in Russia seems to be polarized. But what we do know from previous conflicts is that people can flip. And um, there's some, I think some, I, I think there was already signs of disconsent before the war about the prospect of full blown war in Ukraine, in Russia. <clears throat> I think those signs were going to multiply. And the reason I think is that because some of the feedback that's coming from uh, the experience that the Russian military are having uh, in fighting in Ukraine. Uh, a lot of them, particularly the conscripts, uh, felt they were lied to about the whole operation. And they are conveying that through social media interviews. Again, the Ukraine 
the Ukrainian government is quite, and the military there have been quite resourceful um, in, as far as we can see, treating Russian prisoners as well and giving them access uh, by phone to their families in Russia. And I, I think that's going to fuel discontent. The sense it's one thing to fight a war, but when you felt you've been fighting on false pretenses, that that may that may be potentially explosive. So we could, within a matter of weeks. Um, see public opinion change but at the moment because it's an authoritarian system it's very difficult to know um, one thing I, I think we should add to this situation is the international dimension um, one of the reasons I think it won't be easy to resolve this is because this was just a blatant violation of um, the principle of state sovereignty and territorial integrity and I, I think many countries around the world would be uneasy with any outcome which involved uh, an erosion, a further erosion of the rules-based system. This is not just between Ukraine and Russia. It, it, it involves an attack on principles which many other countries subscribe to and would be loathe to see eroded, including our own, actually. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 that, that's my take. Before we turn to that, which I think is very interesting to talk about and the position of countries like India and in China as well, of course. Um, just a, just a bit more on the, on the Russian situation. I mean, I think there is a generational aspect to it. Um, a lot of older Russians maybe have some kind of um, uh, romantic view of the kind of Soviet period, or uh, they get a lot of their news from um, the state propaganda, whereas younger generational ones more likely to kind of look for alternative news sources, um, have been educated in different ways. Um, there's a class element to it. In, in 2012, when there were big protests as Putin kind of manipulated the election to get back into power, and he almost kind of bought off the middle classes, in, particularly in Moscow and St. Petersburg, by kind of creating a very kind of nice way of living there. I mean, I went there in 2016 and you got these kind of lovely pedestrian streets with cafes and then trendy bars and things. So, um, it, you know, it was almost a sort of deal. Well, I mean, people couldn't protest. They knew that, um, but they were being sort of bought off by a quite comfortable way of living. And of course, also that included cheap flights to Europe and so on. Their only route really to do that now is through Serbia. But um, so those people will not be happy with what's happening in terms of sanctions and, and the isolation of Russia. Uh, younger people probably as I say, more kind of hope and, and because of that, more active and therefore potentially more likely to change things. However, having said all of that, I think in many ways what's happened over the last couple of years, and this is kind of concluding it, is that Russia in many ways has become a fascist state. Con control of the media, um, almost glorification of the military. We're seeing a bit with this kind of parades with people doing this Z symbol, um, which has been building up. Um, it's partly been built up through this kind of almost kind of religious celebration of the Second World War and the sacrifices and so on, which is kind of brought into has an element of kind of glorification of, of war. Um, this is so, and and I think as for, as say Serbia was in the 1990s, there's a kind of strong constituency for that sort of thing, including among young people. So I think 
there is a split there, potential split. But uh, I do agree with Robert that um, things, it may take a bit longer, but things can change. We saw it with the late Soviet Union, uh, with the disaster with Afghanistan. We saw it actually with the Chechen war, the first Chechen war, which was very unpopular actually in Russia. So things could could well change. Um, just, um, just to sort of shout out really the, the, the bravery of those in Russia who have been out in protest protested i mean it really is very dangerous now so yeah. there are some protests they're small scale but they are very brave that people have done it and people are resisting in in interesting and novel ways um so you just played that music and i literally as you were playing that got an email from my phd student asking me to share um something from somebody she knows in st petersburg who's created a um an underground choir called vox humana to protest against the war and she sent me some music which i can forward to you so there's just good. kind of different ways of, of resisting uh, around um u- using in fact obviously um, kind of different forms of social media and so on now it's hard with the kind of control that's been attempted on that but people especially young people in russia are pretty tech savvy to be able to kind of find ways around it i think okay. um but Robert also raised the sort of international situation. So I think Robert, could you talk about that? Because we probably don't have time to go into it as much as sure. I'd like. But it seems to me that the European Union and Germany have been changed probably permanently in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the most interesting one is, has been Germany because it, it, it's literally, it, for a long time, I think Mr. Putin assumed that because Germany was so dependent on Russian gas, um, and the Nord Stream pipeline, which had been in you know in the in the works for some time, that Germany would be more accommodating, perhaps, of Russian ambitions than other countries. Whereas Germany seems to have just had enough of Mr. Putin. And uh, uh, Merkel expressed uh, Angela Merkel um, in the past uh, expressed frustration, but you know the current government, Mr. Schultz's government, has in fact doubled uh, Germany's commitment to defence expenditure and Germany uh, and he's done so with tremendous domestic support this is an SDP leader in Germany doing this and uh, I think this is a really significant change and um, so yeah I mean once again Mr Putin seems to have miscalculated he seems Mm -hmm. to have got much more wrong than he's got right so far during this crisis and uh, but it has harmed the international system to some extent Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this yeah, is a dangerous thing. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, 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 mean, I never thought I'd say this, but Boris Johnson said something I actually agree with, which was that Mr. Putin in this crisis can't be after the invasion. Can't be, this, this invasion must fail if we are going to have a rules based international system. If Mr. Putin wants to redesign the intellectual architecture of the post, you know, um, Cold War security order, using force that's a recipe for disaster and I, I i don't think you know mr putin sees the world i think in 19th century terms in in international politics he seems to have always believed it was just a game between great powers that's not the case i think germany's transformation during this crisis the fact there's been such strength of feeling against russia both in ukraine and in eastern europe and elsewhere against this crisis seems to have caught him off guard. I was struck in the re- the build-up to this invasion that Mr. Putin kept trying to consult with the Biden administration to solve a problem rather than sitting down with Mr. Zelensky. It seems that 
he still has this view that great powers run the world. But of course, they don't. And they can't because most of the problems, challenges now transcend borders. So, it, it, you know, it does seem, excuse me, it does seem as if uh, we've reached a point okay. um, where we've reached Mr. the Putin end of our... has to go. Thanks a lot, friends. Uh, Robert and James, we've reached our end of time as well. But Thank you. A, a good summing up, really. And there's a lot to talk about next time because everything has changed. Thanks very much, Marvin. Thank Thanks, Jim. Bye. Marvin, thank you. Bye. Yes. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.